0: are listening to the manchester vineyard podcast we'd love for you to join us to discover more about who we are where we meet and how you can connect with us head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description so I don't know about you, but I love a good underdog story. I feel like everyone loves a hero, an unlikely hero, and the Bible has many of them. There's loads of gold to be found in the least likely of places and the least likely of people. So I just want to run through um, just a few people, um, unlikely heroes, whistle-stop tour. so apologies for being quite um, jumping around quite a bit. But the first one that I wanted to look at is Moses. He grew up outside of his family and his culture. He doesn't fully belong and so in the, same, in the same way that others do. And so in the end, he gets things wrong quite a lot. One example of this is that he ends up killing a man in his attempt to stand up for the people of God. In Exodus 2, he runs away in guilt rather than coming clean. He's not the best communicator. So in Exodus 4, verse 10, he says, I'm not very good with words. I've never been... I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. He lets his human faults and failings get in the way of what God has for him and wants to do. And ultimately, it prevents him from entering the promised land with the other Israelites. But despite all of that, for those of you unfamiliar with the story, he's seen as one of the most important prophets and leaders in the Bible. When the Israelites, the people of God, were living in slavery in Egypt, God uses Moses, the person with not the greatest communication skills, to negotiate with Pharaoh, to bring the the Israelites out into freedom and towards the promised land. God uses him to perform amazing miracles. He parts the sea. He gets water out of a rock. he, He helps to provide bread from heaven. He uses Moses to deliver the Ten Commandments. He establishes the priesthood. He's a literal legend. Our second person is Rahab, who we meet very briefly in Joshua 2. She was a prostitute who literally lived on the outskirts of the city. She's really on the margins of society. She wasn't even Jewish. She'd come to faith and was faithful to God in helping God's people. She saves the lives of two of them and ultimately secures Israel's future. God used her even though she was on the edge. She also becomes a key part of Jesus's ancestry, which we'll look at a bit shortly. In Judges 6, we meet Gideon. The disobedient and idolatrous Israel is afflicted by the Midianites. They're a nomadic tribe that swoop in right at the moment when Israel's harvest is ripe and they steal their crops and their livestock to the point of destitution and starvation. So the Israelites call upon God for help, and his angel appears to Gideon, who is threshing wheat and hiding from the Midianites. And Gideon was the lowest in his family's status ladder. His family were part of the Abizrite clan. The weakest, tribe, the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh. And even Manasseh itself wasn't one of the big tribes. It's often referred to as a half-tribe. Gideon is a very little fish in a big pond. But in verse 12, the angel greets Gideon as a mighty hero. God knows that there's gold in Gideon, and he speaks it out. He was made to be a hero. But Gideon deflects. He doesn't see it in himself. And then the Lord says further in Judges 6, verse 14... The Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you and you will destroy destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon replies, if you're truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. And then what follows is that we kind of see that God, Gideon needs constant reassurance. He's got, clearly got some issues. Um, he asks God for this sign. God gives him a sign. And then he's like, it's God. I'm going to die. He panics. God has to reassure him again. Um, another time, God tells him to take down the idols and altars in his family's household. And he does this in the dead of night because he's too scared for anyone to know that it was him. God then calls Gideon towards battle, and again he asks God for a sign to prove that it is him before he'll cooperate. And once he gets that sign, he then says, I'm really sorry, God, please don't be angry with me, but can I have another sign, please? The Lord makes some changes to his army configuration and tells Gideon he will defeat the Midianites. And by this time, God knows how it's going to go, so he anticipates that Gideon will need need reassurance. So he says in chapter 7, Verse 10, if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged, and then you will be eager to attack. So God just keeps matching Gideon's hesitation, his, his uncertainty, with certainty and reassurance. Gideon's gold is buried under layers of social stigma, family politics, and a huge amount of self-doubt. Talk about imposter syndrome. But God is unveiling the true gold, refining and encouraging it. And eventually that leads to gold in Gideon, him being a mighty hero, being unearthed, enabling him to lead Israel to victory over the Midianites, saving his people from destruction, and going down in history as Israel's greatest judge. Then in the book of Ruth, we read about Ruth, another unlikely source of gold. Ruth was a Moabite. In chapter two, it talks about her being a foreigner, but more than that, Midian, Midian, Midianites were pa- Moabites, not Midianites. Moabites were pagan; um, they were remarkably hostile towards Israel, and due to their proximity to Israel, they were continuous military threat, threat and also a religious one, tempting the Israelites into idolatry. Ruth was also a widow in that day and age, made making her fundamentally vulnerable and as no one could provide for her. And on top of that, at the point that we meet her, she doesn't have any children, another adversity because she can't be looked after in her old age. So when Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, who does love the Lord and does follow God, decides to return to her homeland, Ruth insists on following her without any prospects for herself because Naomi doesn't have any other sons that Ruth could potentially marry and then secure her future with. But Ruth pledges her allegiance to Naomi and to Naomi's God. This foreigner, fundamentally vulnerable, with no prospects, living in poverty, has wealth in other ways. She was loyal, humble, and full of faith. She ends up marrying Boaz, the son of Rahab, the prostitute we mentioned earlier. And later, she gives birth to Obed, an important link in the genealogy of Jesus. In fact, he became the grandfather of David, the greatest king of Israel. David, who we meet in 1 Samuel 16. The then current king, Saul, had disobeyed God. So God decides and tells the prophet, this prophet Samuel that he is going to anoint a new king instead. And it will be one of the eight sons of Jesse of Bethlehem. So Samuel the prophet arrives in Bethlehem, he's got a cow for a sacrifice, he's got a horn of anointing oil, and he invites Jesse and his sons to join him for the worshipping and sacrifice. Samuel eyes up one of the sons, Eliab. He really does look like a king, but God says no. Jesse suggests Adinadab, also a good option, but again, it's not him either. And they look over each son together, and none of them is God's chosen. And then we read in 1 Samuel Sixteen, verse 11. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. In the natural, David wasn't anyone's first choice or second or third or fourth. It says that he was handsome with beautiful eyes. But in a day where your birth order mattered, your vocation mattered, a young last born shepherd boy probably wasn't the best choice for the king of Israel. No matter how beautiful his eyes were. His brothers hadn't thought, where's David? Why isn't he here? They probably saw him as the least deserving of all of them to become a king. Even his father, who obviously would have loved him and appreciated his skill in the family, um, family farming business, didn't bother inviting him along to meet with Samuel. And David himself would have been pretty aware of his low, low standing in the family pecking order, just as Gideon was. Only God knew what lay in David, and shared that insight with Samuel. And David, like Moses, is a perfect example of the fact that a lot of the time, our journeys aren't linear. He went on to be a great king with a really precious relationship with God. He's described as a man after God's own heart, but he also messes up. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we read of his affair with Bathsheba, And David instigates this. He gets her brought to him in a time where he really should have been off fighting in battle and at a time when the woman's husband, Uriah, is away, fighting under David's command in said battle. Bathsheba falls pregnant, and rather than coming clean, David looks to bring her husband back from battle, hoping that their reunion will make the unborn child look like it was legitimately the husband's. When this doesn't work, David sends Uriah back to battle, engineering circumstances that lead to his death, so that David can marry Bathsheba instead. David essentially not only forgets the gold and good that is in him, he buries it, piling rocks and sin and shame on top. Crucially though, David turns to God in his guilt. David in the Psalms confesses and asks for God's forgiveness, begs to be cleansed and purified. We really get an insight into David's remorse for what he has done, but also his acknowledgement that in his natural state, he's not worthy. He says in Psalm 51, I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. He has a keen awareness of his fallen nature and the fact that God had intended him to be more than he actually is. And despite this, in his remorse and repentance, God still uses him in so many ways. As I mentioned earlier, David is also a part of Jesus' lineage. And not only that, but God uses a child that David had with Bathsheba herself to continue the rulership of Israel and Jesus' ancestry. God redeems the mess that David creates. He remains the greatest king of Israel, and God consistently brought the gold out of the mud. And then many, t- many years later, we get Mary, the woman God chooses to bring her son Jesus into the world. She was just a teenager, really young. She was from Nazareth, a forgotten, sleepy town. But God sees the gold, her faithfulness, obedience, courage. And despite her age and her background, God uses her in a significant way to birth and raise Jesus, journeying with him during his earthly time. And then, of course, we have the disciples the people God chose to entrust his message to and build his church through. And they were all very flawed and had many weaknesses. Let's take Peter, for example. Originally called Simon, he was a fisherman, a respectable job, but not necessarily a Jewish leader or not probably not formally educated either. In the Gospels, he's portrayed as well-meaning, but rash and impulsive, often misguided and falling short. One of these moments is in Matthew 16, when Jesus predicts his death and the suffering that he'll need to endure. Peter gets a bit above his station and reprimands Jesus. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then in Matthew 26, despite Jesus commanding him to keep watch while he prayed alongside James and John, Peter repeatedly fails to stay awake while Jesus prays. Jesus is in his greatest time of angst, and Peter's just sleeping. And then another example is in Luke 22. Jesus is talking about how he will be betrayed. I'm reading from verse 33. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. And Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And then later, Peter's bold pledge is put to the test. Jesus is arrested, so verse 54. They arrested him and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said... This man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, You must be one of them. No, man, I am not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, This must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly. Peter was one of those closest to Jesus, and yet he scolds Jesus when he says things that he doesn't like the sound of. He chooses his own comfort over what Jesus tells him to do. Oh gosh, that's a bit right um he chooses his own comfort over over what jesus tells him to do and despite his adamance that he is jesus's literal ride or die when the going gets tough he's like jesus who it sounds pretty familiar to me if i'm honest despite all his flaws he is renamed peter the rock in matthew 16 jesus says on this rock peter he will build his church He's one of the three disciples that is invited into the most intimate moments, into the moments like the transfiguration, the the raising of a dead girl, the Garden of Gethsemane. In John 21, after his resurrection, Jesus reinstates Peter with the responsibility of shepherding his followers, feeding and caring for his sheep. In Acts 2, Peter preaches to the Jews that all of Scripture points towards Jesus And more than 3,000 people come to faith that day. In Acts 10, God speaks to Peter through a vision, telling him that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but the good news is therefore to be shared with the Gentiles, the non-Jews as well, like us. In Galatians 2, verse 9, he is called one of the pillars of the church. Despite all his mess-ups, Peter became one of the most influential Christian leaders in the first century. And God used him hugely to shape the church. All of these are examples of God bringing out his gold in the most unlikely places and the most unlikely people. From what I've read, and this is one of those wild facts that you're like, how do they even know this? Apparently, Google tells me that the estimate of how much gold has been mined so far in the world is around 152,000 metric tons, which sounds like a lot, but actually is only enough to fill 60 trailers. And scientists believe that there's still much more, around eight times more than that to be found. Again, a bit of a wild claim, but regardless of the exact numbers, that is just like us. The gold we see on the surface of my life, of your life, is only a glimpse of the gold that is in us, because ultimately, as incredible as it sounds, we were created by God and as a reflection and resemblance of him, the most wonderful, precious, powerful being. Genesis 1 says that we were made in his image and likeness. We were created good in the truest sense of the word, with goodness in us, to do good. We were created pure gold. But when humanity chose to reject God and do stuff our own way, we ushered in the darkness. The fall piled soil and rocks over the gold in us. It smeared mud over the the glittering goodness. And in each of our lives, whether through stuff we've done, or stuff that we've been through, or stuff that's been done to us... Whether we're aware of the gold that is there or not, the gold is there, and the image of and likeness of our creator is there. And through the Bible we read of people's struggles to be true to their created state. The Israelites made sacrifices for their sins and sought to obey God's laws in order to make themselves right with God. But as humans, trying to be the pure gold we're meant to be in our own strength, just on our own, proved again and again impossible. We see that clearly in Moses' story, in David's, in Peter's, in mine. But even though we can't reach that by ourselves, there is a way that God made it possible. He sent his son Jesus to make things right between us. The cross makes it possible. Jesus took on our sin, the dirt, the muck, and died on the cross, paying the price to reconcile us fully to God and to uncover his gold within us. Through his death, he has brought us into his presence, into his healing, and the fullness of relationship with him and who we are. Often people use a mining for gold metaphor for the work of becoming more like him. But the right relationships, the right discipleship, our righteousness, rightness with God becomes evident. And sometimes I assume that this is going to look a little bit like gold mining, looked like as a kid, um, It's got a little video as a a visual. When I became a Christian, God, Jesus took up the shovel and the pickaxe, and he dug through my sin, and he struck gold. And yes, he did strike gold. The gold is inside of me. I am his gold. But the reality is that I still live in a fallen world. I still mess up. Sometimes the world piles the dirt back on me. Sometimes I pile the dirt back on myself. And I need to keep coming back to Jesus to show me the gold, to help me be the gold I'm meant to be. Rather than just an image of someone simply digging into some dirt and striking gold, we're in the process of being panned for gold. When someone gold pans, it is a painstaking process. They sift through soil and sand, water, muck, rock. They need to wash away what isn't gold in order to reveal it. And they need to do it again and again. It is a process rather than an instant moment. But the gold is heavy. It is weighty. It is solid. So slowly but surely, that is what remains in the panning process. God knows the gold that he created in us, and he works hard for it to come forth for his glory. Again and again, he washes away the dirt. He brings healing and wholeness so that the filth falls away from his gold. Sometimes it's a gentle coaxing. Sometimes it's a brisk shaking off of the things that aren't of him. But where we allow him, he loves to work to reveal his gold. And what does that look like? So many things. We're all really different. But I've recently found Philippians 3 a really encouraging place to start. It's well worth a read um, of Philippians all in one go if you have the time. Paul's letter to the faithful believers there doesn't follow one set of an idea from beginning to end. But rather, it's a series of short, reflective essays that all revolve around a poem in chapter 2, which beautifully encapsulates Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So definitely make time to read that. Each section, in various ways, unpacks how following Jesus means seeing your own life as a living expression of Jesus' story. Chapter 3 is where Paul shares his own story. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought that these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things, that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No dear brothers and sisters I have not achieved it but I focus on this one thing forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things and if you disagree on some point I believe God will make it plain to you but we must hold on to the progress we have made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your life, lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction, their God is their appetite, they brag about shameful things, and they think about only the li- this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like His own, using the same power with which He will bring everything under His control. As Paul shares his experience of knowing Jesus and allowing Him to pan away the dirt and bring forth the gold, He gives us gold. He keeps us, gives us three truths to help us do the same. Paul says in verse 12, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ first possessed me. Becoming like Jesus, pressing into embodying his perfection, his gold, isn't a bar to reach in a moment, but a constant journey of stepping more into what he has for us. So first and foremost, we have to know Jesus. Everything. Everything pales into comparison with the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says that everything else is garbage. In fact, the original Greek term is a bit less polite and means excrement. Knowing Jesus is everything, the only thing that matters. The thing that each of our unlikely heroes has in common is that they all sought to know God, each of them heard the Lord and stepped into relationship with him. Ruth and Rahab were outside of the faith, but were compelled to believe and to choose in and allow him to shape their lives. Moses, Gideon, Mary, David, Peter, they all encountered God, had an experience of him and his presence, and pursued knowing him, learning about him, listening to him, obeying him, not always perfectly, but certainly sincerely. And while our experiences of God might look different, not just to them, but to one another as well, we can and do encounter God, the living God. We can meet him and hear him and get to know him in reading the scriptures, in prayer, in meditation, in worshipping him, in stepping out in the things he is asking us to do. That is how we come to know his suffering and his restorative love, by pressing into relationship with him by seeking to fully understand the significance of what he has done for us and what he calls us into, which leads us on to the second truth. We have to rely on what Jesus has done. We cannot rely on our own efforts. If anyone ticked the boxes, it was Paul. He was zealous in his obedience to the law. He was the pinnacle of of religiousness. He says in verse 3, we rely on what Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Just because we know Jesus or have encountered something of him doesn't mean that we've taken that next step and are relying on him for our whole lives. In fact, I'm sure if you're anything like me, there'll be times or ways in which you're plugging away in your own strength When you know full well, you just have to rest in what God has done for you. We cannot save ourselves by trying harder. We cannot become the gold we were meant to be through sheer hard work and determination. Paul tried and he became the enemy number one of the church. Moses tried, he ended up a murderer. When we rely on our own human efforts rather than resting in what Jesus has done, at best our attempts will be misguided if not as destructive as Paul and Moses. Our unlikely heroes are unlikely exactly because they could not have done what they, what they did through their own human efforts. God did it through their faith in Him. Gideon was incredibly timid and fearful. Ruth was a disenfranchised nobody. David was a young shepherd boy who had a wandering eye and a conniving streak if he was tempted. Peter was hot-headed. If it was up to any of them, any of their social standing, any of their natural character and abilities, they would not and could not have done what they did. Instead of stories of victory or people coming to faith, we just have quite a sad and dramatic blooper reel. And I know that is true of my life. I know that I have gold to offer this world, but only because the creator placed it in me and only because the creator has redeemed me. Jesus died to redeem my flaws, my sin, and to fully free me up to be the gold I was always meant to be. And because I still live in a fallen world, I am living in the midst of a spiritual battle. I constantly have to keep coming back to Jesus where he rules as king. He redeems my failings in this world. He gives me the strength, guidance, and ability to usher in his kingdom here on earth, to be more than I am now. Paul uses the analogy of running a race. And from what we know of his life, it isn't a quick sprint. He wrote Philippians at least 24 years after he first came to know Jesus. And he writes that he's still on this journey of knowing Jesus and becoming more like him. It isn't like a cartoon just picking up his pickaxe and striking gold and there it's done. It's a process. So it requires us to be shapeable. We're all learning and growing to be more like Jesus. And as we cannot rely on our own human efforts to do that, we need to be open to Jesus' work and to the Holy Spirit guiding us. It's a constant refining process, a sifting out of what isn't gold that we need to be regularly open to. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Something I'm learning to be very true in my relationship with my little boy, James. He's a delight and a gift, but boy, the days are long sometimes. He's still at the very start of his life of learning how to be a human. Um, and he has quite a, quite a mixed bag of skills, some basic skills he's not quite mastered, some others he's quite advanced. He can blame the dog for digging, for the fact that he dug up the flower beds. Um, but he can't say the word blueberry. He's still in nappies. He still tries to eat ice lollies every morning for breakfast, even though he knows that it's not, not breakfast staple breakfast food. And thankfully, he hasn't worked out how to open the freezer yet. He's a real sponge. He's constantly, every day, learning something new. And every day, alongside keeping him safe and healthy, we're trying to teach him how to do things, how to say things, how to behave, how not to hurt himself, and how not to hurt other people. In our relationship with God, we are the toddlers. And boy, the days must be long for God. I may be fully toilet trained, but I still want to tell that lie to get myself out of trouble. I still don't like sharing my toys, much less, than, much less giving them away. I still want to do things that I know will hurt me or others in the long run, just because in the moment it feels good. So I need to keep coming back to Jesus to teach me, to parent me, to sift me, and show me how to get rid of the muck that keeps me in that place. Knowing Jesus and becoming like him is a process, a constant panning for gold process. We have to come to him with our stuff, our baggage, our wounds, both literal and metaphorical, our ingrained habits, our addictions. To rely on what Christ has done for us is to keep pressing into what he has for us. Freedom, healing, redemption, forgiveness. As Paul says in verse 13, I focus on one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. We cannot look back. We cannot dwell on our humanness just as much as we can't count on it. We can only press onwards into what Jesus has done for us and what he is calling us into. And thirdly, very helpfully, we do this all together in community. Paul says in verse 17, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. We're all made in the image of God. We all have his gold inside of us and we get to be a part of both learning from each other and also calling out the gold in each other. We're called to be accountable to one another, to confess our sins to one another, in James 5, to encourage one another and build each other up, 1 Thessalonians 5, to submit to one another, Ephesians 5, to gently challenge one another, Galatians 6, to spur one another on, Hebrews 10, to speak truth into each other's lives, Ephesians 4. Paul encourages us again and again through the New Testament to place ourselves in trusting, healthy, accountable relationships with others, to allow others who we see God's gold in to see our gold and our dirt and to speak into it, to be accountable and shapeable with those Jesus-seeking relationships, to practice together celebrating God's goodness, worshipping him together, cheering one another on when we step out in faith and affirming, speaking out the gold that we see in each other. I see God's joy in you. I see his Goodness in your life. I've been touched by your ca- kindness, your hospitality, your faith spurs me on. It might feel a bit uncomfortable and a little bit gushy and countercultural, but following Jesus is countercultural. And the main thing, the only thing really, that we can offer each other is to point one another back to Him, back to His presence and His work in our lives. We are all unlikely heroes. We're all made of God's good gold. We were created good in the truest sense of the word, with goodness in us to do good. We were created pure gold. And we all live in a fallen world where all sorts of brokenness has obscured it, stuff we've done, stuff that has been done to us, stuff that we've just gone through. But Jesus came and he died and he rose again to wash it away to sift away our dirt, our shame, our brokenness, to bring healing and freedom and wholeness, to uncover the gold, his gold. There's an invitation before us this morning to come to Jesus, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe for the thousandth time. He says, come to me, invite me in, rely on me this morning. He is the one who, the only one who is able to carefully, lovingly draw out the gold in each of us. So why don't we we stand? I'd really encourage you today to step into knowing him, whatever that looks like, to rely on his work. You might want to close your eyes. You might want to put your hands out as an indication that you're open to his presence and his panning process. Let's just Spend some time pressing into his presence together. Come, Holy Spirit.
1: We're just going to take a moment to invite the Holy Spirit. God is here with us now. If this is new to you, if this is the first time, um, people around you might just close their eyes, open up their hands. We just know and believe that, that God is here and can meet with us. As we were worshiping this morning, um, there was a song that spoke about fear and anxiety and shackles and shadow, um, and I, I felt that there may be a number of people in this room that, as they sang that, they may have felt the Holy Spirit just stir in their heart. That there's something, one of those words, there's something there that they need that you got. You need to hand over to Jesus. That you need God to meet you in and free you in to give you peace. Yeah, and just as Pasc has been sharing this morning as well, um, that amazing metaphor of gold being in us. I think there might be some of us in this room that when you think of yourself, you don't think there's gold there at all. Um, Yeah. That might be through what people have said or what maybe you've said of yourself, but you find it hard to believe that it's there. And there's others that this might be a real cleansing moment. Maybe you've come and for a while you've been piling on dirt on on that gold and you know you've been doing it. I think Jesus is just inviting you to be to come to him afresh, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, for that gold to come through again.
0: Yeah, this morning some of us want to come before God to be healed up some of us will want to come before God to confess and to put ourselves at the foot of the cross again and some of us just need just need his presence maybe for the first time and if if that is you and you yeah you want to you want to know Jesus, you want to know him more please do let someone around you know and they can pray for you I think there's um there's real power in in stepping into these moments and so if um if any of that resonates for you if there's anything that you want to bring before God this morning why don't you come out to the sides and to the front stand before God and say yes I'm I'm open to this
1: Yeah, so we just invite you to, to come up to, them to the sides if there's anything you want prayer for or um, if anything's resonated this morning, then we would love to come alongside you and pray with you. Um, a prayer team were praying this morning as well and they had a word that someone's got pain in their right shoulder blade um, and we'd love to heal and pray for you and see if God can heal you this morning.
0: Um, I just felt this morning like there's a real wrestle in the room. Um, it's obviously in worship you get to sort of see what's going on, and uh, I just was asking God what it might be, and I felt like He said um, it's like a wrestle over some people's hearts. Um, he He wants it. <laughs> he wants He wants to come in and and fix things um and the enemy doesn't want that to happen so I don't know if that might be someone coming to faith for the first time or like surrendering again coming back um but I just got the sense it's not like you don't have to power through um you can just let go and invite him in so yeah just wanted to share it in case that is anyone in the room this morning
1: Um, another thing that passed out this morning is um, that knowing Jesus is everything. Um, and I'd wondered if there was a few people in the room that they know that that's the truth, but that's not how they feel. Um, and I think, well, God is everything. And if that's, if that's you, then we'd love to pray, pray with you. Love you to just know more of God, know more of his heart, more of his love, more of his story, more of his grace.
0: Yeah. So, if if you, any of that resonates, come come to the front, to the sides, and if you're in a place where you, yeah, you're part of a small group here and want to step alongside your brothers and sisters in this, please do that and just have have a time of um, yeah of worship and reflection and surrendering. For listening to find out more head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description